0: Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, Leaving a five-star rating and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. All right, so for the podcast, we'll say hello, everybody. And we're ready to begin. We just watched the Bible Project videos on First, Second Peter, and Jude. As always, I thought they were really good. So let's begin and talking about First Peter. Now, First Peter uses an amanuensis. I'm getting really good at pronouncing that word now. And depending on your translation, it'll be Sylvanus or Silas. So right here on this translation, it says it says Silas. The chances are high that we're talking about the same Silas that worked with Paul for Paul's second and third missionary journey. Uh, This suggests that Peter and Paul were not rivals. And this is important because you'll see a lot of times on, uh, say, like a history channel or, or whatnot, you'll see people that try to set up a narrative that tried to... Create multiple different traditions in the first generations, and one of the popular things you'll see would, would be to try to create rivalries between Peter, Paul, James, and sometimes John. The, that they all kind of, especially the first three, that, that Peter and Paul and James, uh, James the half brother, the one we talked about last week with the book of James, uh, have are kind of like the three pillars of the early church, and they all represent different. Competing visions of Christianity, and Paul's is the one that won out. And that's the narrative you'll often see, but that doesn't really seem to be supported by the New Testament. Instead, you see a lot of overlap. So, for instance, you've got characters like John Mark. John Mark is the author of the book of Mark, John Mark is introduced in the book of Acts, in Acts 12. You see him in relation to uh, his activities with Peter. This is the time when Peter is released from prison supernaturally by an angel, and he goes to the uh, home or the house church, I believe, is the implication where John Mark lives. And then church tradition teaches us. And this is sometimes when you say church tradition, it it's, it's really a toss up. I think it's a really, really, extremely strong case that John Mark wrote. Mark while he was hanging out with Peter, and that Peter is the primary source of the, of the book of Mark. In many ways, you can actually think of Mark as Peter's account, and I'll get to that here in a second. But then, later in the same chapter, you see John Mark appear again, and this time he's running off with Paul, uh, who at this point in the book of Acts is still being referred to by his Jewish name of Saul. So like I said a second ago many try to drive a wedge between the Christian traditions and this is a very popular narrative uh, and that the narrative is that the first generation of Christians were were very diverse uh, very diverse very intellectually and culturally diverse and cultural diversity is a great thing but the idea is that you had in the first generation of Christians you had everything from super conservative Jews who were almost reluctant to accept Christ all the way to super I guess leftist would be the term gnostic greek types and that's just not the case. Gnosticism sneaks into uh, Christianity in the like uh, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation in that range. And then it kind of dies off cuz gnosticism kind of ran out of steam. It was just it was too fanciful and we'll get to it later cuz I think I set aside one of our later lectures to talk about some of these gnostic writings. And so these people will will say that eventually the church zeroed in on Paul's teachings, and that's why so many of Paul's letters are in the New Testament, whereas other, the idea is that other letters written by James the Lesser and, and I don't know, Simon Zealot and, and, and some of the other apostles never made it. And then perhaps Peter had, even had other letters, and they didn't make it because they didn't line up with Paul. Uh, and so because it all kind of zeroed in on Pauline theology and only then once Paul's orthodoxy got firmly settled then the denomination started to spread again but I have a better narrative and it goes like this the earliest generation of Christians were Jewish almost exclusively in fact the first real great controversy in the church was whether Gentiles could even be part of it in fact controversy 0.5 was whether Uh, Samaritans could be part of it, because they were kind of a half-Jewish group. And the Samaritans and the Jews had kind of a cultural bitter rivalry. I would say a good example would be like England and Ireland. Very similar, but just enough different that they kind of hate each other. So for the earliest generation of Christians, the the kind of post-Pentecost Christians... Even accepting Samaritans into the fold was was a, was a big leap. But, you know, at least they're half-Jewish. That's great. But then Peter goes off and preaches to the house of Cornelius, and now all of a sudden you're bringing in Latins into the church, people who have no real connection to Judaism or to ethnic Ju- Judaism. And so that was the first big controversy. And so as Gentile cultures get folded into the church, you do start to see... Diversity, And some of that is some religious diversity, especially a a generation and a half later when Gnosticism starts to creep in. And that Gnosticism finds its genesis in in Greek cultures. There was Gnosticism before Christianity. In the last few uh, centuries of the B.C. period, there were Gnostic groups who were Gnostic about Zeus and Apollo and and, and the Roman deities like uh, Jupiter and Minerva, etc., and so Gnosticism basically is just a, a mystic philosophy that says that re- religious tradition X is really about all this secret knowledge that I have and you don't. And maybe I'll recruit you and then you'll have the secret knowledge. Or I won't recruit you and it'll remain ex- exclusive with us special people who know the secret knowledge. And so the idea of an extremely charismatic, intelligent, Jewish rabbi from the backwater Arkansas of Israel, known as Galilee, who died an extraordinary death at the hands of the power structure of both Jews and Romans, was a prime target for the Gnostics to say, oh yeah, that guy was so great, and guess what? We have his secret teachings that not even the apostles have. We've got secret teachings. And that's where you get books like the Gospel of Thomas and some other other books like that comes from the Gnostics. I hadn't planned on talking about the Gnostics tonight. I'm kind of going off on on bunny trails here. Okay, so back to to the narrative I'll set up. So both Peter and Paul were key, by the way, in the development of adding Gentiles to the church. So Peter was the one who the Holy Spirit directed to go to the house of Cornelius, and in the process... I believe the Holy Spirit was using it as as an example. The, 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 the sheet that was left came down from heaven with all the different foods you can eat, which included stuff like shrimp and, and pork. Hallelujah. The, uh, and thankfully, that was, was the case, because not only was that, was Peter was smart enough to realize that, that the really important message was not so much these foods, but the foods these, that are eaten by the, these kind of people, namely Gentiles, so it's, the real message was that the gospel is available for Gentiles as well. The secondary benefit is I could have a bacon-wrapped shrimp cocktail, and that's that's amazing and wonderful, and I love all of those words. So so Peter was, was key on that. And then Paul ends up taking a role which can basically be, de- be described as apostle to the Gentiles. He goes off and reaches out to churches, some of them like Philippi that were almost not there were almost no Jews in Philippi or there were very few it was a very Gentile majority city and so both of them were key in spreading the gospel past the comfortable confines of Judaism you have another connection and that's what I was looking up earlier while you guys were talking I, I wish I had internet here I don't know why my phone doesn't have internet here I just must not have a very good reception but it occurred to me I remembered that Peter actually mentions Paul and and Peter, you saw that in the video. And so in 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul. Is that, that a way to, I guess he could be sarcastic, but that unless he's sarcastic, that's not a way of describing somebody you would consider a religious rival. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So not only does Peter speak well of Paul, he refers to Paul's writing as scriptures. Because the implication by sentence structure is that the people misuse Paul's writings as they do with other scriptures. The clear implication is that Paul's letters should be considered scripture on par with Genesis and 1 Chronicles and Amos the you know, and all the other books of the Old Testament. So this is extremely, extremely high praise for Paul from Peter. Not something you would say for a rival that you, you're trying to beat out for Christian orthodoxy. In fact... Peter, Paul, and James, and I I think you can also throw in Barnabas and John. And and I think you can throw in Philip as well. Acts also talks about Philip. It's unclear, at least to my reading, whether we're talking about Philip the disciple or Philip the deacon. Because Acts has two Philips. But Philip goes off and he's the one that reaches out, uh, brings the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip takes the gospel south into Africa. So, I guess you can throw Philip in there as well. So, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, John, James, and Philip, you see them doing ministry, missions work, as they move out and reach out to Jews, partial Jewish communities, and non-Jewish communities. And there is great overlap between these guys. They don't seem to represent competing visions. So, Peter and James worked together in year one, and I'm talking now about... James, the br- brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, does have a role to play. But his role is probably one he wouldn't have chosen. James's role is as the first apostle to be executed for the gospel. And so James probably never had a grand missionary career because he was he was taken off the game board too early. But James, the brother of Jesus, as we saw last week, was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And Peter held a similar role in that church. So Peter and James worked together in the earliest years of, of the church. Paul and Barnabas actually shared the first missionary journey. James and Peter, once again, seem to have a similar Jewish first mindset. Not Jewish only mindset, but they would reach out to Jews primarily. Uh, and then you look at Peter and Paul, they end up covering a lot of the same ground. For instance, Rome. Both of them have a footprint in, in Rome and both end up dying in Rome according to church tradition. Paul and John both end up leading the church at Ephesus at certain points in their careers. So these guys have great overlap and they work with a lot of the same people like Barnabas, and Silas, and John Mark. You'll see a lot of, of overlap in, in those ways. So Peter is the primary author or source for three of our New Testament documents. So, in the case of Mark, it appears that that what happened, I think I've mentioned this already, is that John Mark, perhaps in the interval between the time he gets homesick and leaves Paul, and then as Paul and Barnabas are getting ready for the second missionary journey, he decides he's ready to go again. It's perhaps during that time that he spends time with Peter, and hanging out with Peter As his primary source, he writes the Gospel of Mark. This, by the way, would line up with a theory of mine, and that is the growing literacy of Peter. Remember, Peter is a fisherman in first century Galilee. There is no reason he would have been particularly literate. It's possible that he was put through a little bit of of Hebrew school, maybe the, the local synagogue or a local Pharisee group might have put him and his brother through some training, but it's more likely as a working class person that he probably was functionally illiterate. And so John Mark comes along and John Mark is able to provide his services, not so much as an amanuensis in this case, as more like a co-author. So John Mark and Peter seem to work together and it's John Mark's work with Peter as the source. Then you have 1 Peter and in this case we have an amanuensis spelled out. It's Silas or Sylvanus, and in this case, it is an amanuensis. So you can consider First Peter to be Peter's actual thoughts, written—I mean, actual, physically written down by another person. First Peter, the Greek of First Peter, is a perfectly acceptable Greek. It is, it, it is written by somebody who, who knows what they're doing and knows how to write in Greek. Then Second Peter gets really interesting. In fact, some of these arguments you'll hear for people saying why first and second Peter can't be written by the same person. Second Peter comes along and then all of a sudden now you have Second Peter as the weakest Greek in the whole New Testament. If Hebrews or Luke is the most sophisticated Greek, Second Peter is easily the weakest. Lower vocabulary, the sentence structure isn't as sophisticated. It's just it's written by somebody with I would, I would say an upper elementary or low, lower middle school level of Greek knowledge. Whereas Hebrews and Luke would be written by somebody with maybe a college level of Greek knowledge. What I think this means is that Peter has now progressed on another level of literacy. He's gone from being illiterate a, a to the point where he needed a co-author, and then more literate to the point where he can write letters perfectly fine with help, with an amanuensis and now he's gotten to the point where he's actually in his very last years maybe his last year he's actually acquired the ability to write a letter in Greek himself and I think that's what is indicated by the level of Greek in, in Peter so instead of thinking of Peter as 2 Peter as the weakest Greek in the New Testament I think it's a testament to his willingness to learn most of us learn to read in elementary school which, that's a, a great advantage of living in a modern democracy. Imagine trying to learn to read as an adult from scratch in a language that's not your first language. An incredible amount of dedication for a, an apostle of the Lord so that he could write a, a letter that can be read in, in about 11 minutes. That's a lot of work. If, if my theory is right, I honor, it, honor him for it. Okay, so we the video, I would encourage our people at home on the podcast to go ahead and go look at that video, because I'm I'm not talking too much about the content of 1 Peter. It's a good book. It's a real good book. But let's move on to 2 Peter and Jude. These books are strikingly similar. Strikingly similar. At points, like a sentence here or there, or half a sentence here or there, they're nearly identical, which is a, a striking thing in English. It's even more striking in Greek because remember what I keep saying that Greek has more room to work with because as in English you have words like run, ran runs, running where you you just different declensions with one word Greek and there are some modern languages that do this too all the words do that all the nouns, uh, all the adjectives and so how, how words end determine who is the subject and the object and the direct object of the sentence So once you have the right declensions on the words, you can mix and match those words to your heart's content. So having sentences that are nearly identical is clearly a case of cut and paste. Something has happened. So we'll talk in a second about what are some options about the identical wording in the two books. We also see that both books have a nearly identical topic, and that is false teachers and the danger of false teachers in the church. Both of them use the book of First Enoch. So what is First Enoch? Well, we talked earlier about the books that the Catholic Church added to the canon in the Council of Trent. First Enoch is the most significant book that didn't make that cut. So the Catholic Church added, oh I don't know off the top of my head, seven, ten books, somewhere around that. Uh, Books to the Old Testament. And First Enoch is clearly the most important book that didn't make that cut. First Enoch is part of a collection called the Pseudepigrapha, or the the False Writings. First Enoch was a very popular, I think the best word for it would be fan fiction. I, I doubt any of you are Star Trek or Star Wars nerds or Harry Potter or any of that, but if you were young and into those kind of Fandoms. one of the things you can do is you can go online and you can read and you can even write fan fiction. So you can write side stories of Luke Skywalker when he went and fought on some planet you just made up. And that's called fan fiction. So you're using established characters in an established world that has been built by somebody else and then creating a new story that's entirely of your own. I think that's a a good way of describing First Enoch. 1 Enoch is basically a series of prophetic visions by Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, mentioned briefly in the book of Genesis. The most significant thing about Enoch in Genesis is that he apparently was close enough to sinless that God decided to honor him by taking him out of the world at a very young age of three hundred. Because remember, all the other people in his generations were living into their seven to nine hundreds. So God takes him out of the world because the world apparently is a pretty painful place. So Enoch apparently doesn't experience a physical death. That he gets raptured out of the world. The only other person that that we know of that experienced that is Elijah, who gets carried away in a chariot of fire in the book of 2 Kings. So Enoch, even though he barely appears in in the book of Genesis, he is a striking figure, kind of like Melchizedek. That we discussed last time. And because you have such a striking figure where you know very little about, these characters, Melchizedek and Enoch, were ripe for generations of speculation about them and who they are and and why they could be important and what about their lives was so significant. And one of the things to come out of this was 1st Enoch. Now, since it's called 1st Enoch, I'm assuming there was also a second and a third Enoch, or I, I have no clue. I've never even heard those books ever referenced. But I've heard First Enoch referenced a lot, because it's a very significant book. It's supposedly a collection of apocalyptic visions by Enoch, by this character. But obviously, if Enoch is to be accepted as a historical figure, he lived so long ago that apparently he would have predated most writing systems. He would have been around during early Sanskrit days or early... Like the earliest writings of the Sumerians. So he obviously didn't write a book that's oldest version exists in Greek in the second century before Christ. You know, several thousand years after he was supposed to have lived. It's fan fiction, it's not a story that actually happened. That's why, by the way, it didn't make the cut in the first generation, or the first couple generations, when the church was deciding which books should be included. And it's why it didn't make the cut even in the Council of Trent. Because even though it was so interesting, and it was it's a book that's used by 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and, and Jude, that it, it was obvious enough it was not written by Enoch. And so not even the Council of Trent decided to add it to the Apocrypha, the books that were added for the Catholic Bible. Okay, so let's look at, at how First Enoch is used. So in 1 Peter... 3 18 through 22 you see first enoch chapter 10 is referred to directly without quoting it so let's go ahead and read this passage by the way this is one of those passages that that leave people just just dumbfounded they that the, the this passage is just so weird it begins with an incredibly quotable verse but then it kind of goes off the rails that's because peter's referring to this book of First Enoch. He's referring to events that happen in this fan fiction novel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at God's right hand, with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. And so that passage starts off great, and ends pretty great, and right in the middle you're like, wait, Jesus went to Like a spirit prison, and spoke to people who something about the days of Noah while the ark was being built. I got to go check out Genesis. And if you do, you're not going to find it. It's not. It's not there. That's not from the Book of Genesis. That's not to be found in the Noah story. That's part of the Book of First Enoch. Which, if you can, if you can imagine your timeline in your mind, Enoch is several generations before Noah. So, like I said, Enoch is having these prophetic, apocalyptic visions. So Enoch keeps looking forward into history, from his per, per, perspective, from where he's supposed to have been writing, in a language that won't even exist for a thousand years. <laughs> like I said, it's fan fiction. And then in Second Peter two four and following, we'll read for a little bit. We won't read this whole passage. Second Peter is not quoting a specific part of First Enoch, but he's referring to First Enoch's overall theme. First or Second Peter two four and following, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held in judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if He condemned etc etc yeah the rest of that is from Genesis, but that part about the sinning angels, we've heard that enough that people think that's actually in Genesis. But Genesis does not actually say anything about angels sinning. It, it kind of hints at it, but it doesn't actually say that. It doesn't actually say angels sinned and slept with women and created the Nephilim. That's not what Genesis comes out and says. That's what generations of speculation produced from what Genesis says in Genesis chapter 6. And then Jude takes it one step further. and Jude, Jude actually quotes Enoch nine. Jude, verses 14 and 15. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, the false teachers, uh, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a direct quote from the fan fiction known as First Enoch. Then Jude takes it even another step. The video kept referring it to it as the Testament of Moses. I've heard it as the Assumption of Moses. So I'm assuming it's one or the other, or maybe it's the same name for the same book. You, know, Different people say different things. From Jude 9, we read this. But when the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So, go to the end of Deuteronomy, the part where, where Moses dies, and you'll find this story, except you won't. It's not there. This is part of another fan fiction speculation about the last moments of Moses' life on the top of the mountain. All that Deuteronomy says is that Moses went out by himself, and God buried him with his own hands so that nobody would know where he is, so that Moses' body wouldn't become a shrine. And Moses was allowed to see the promised land, but he, but it was Joshua and his generation that were able to go in. So here are the options. One, First Enoch and the Assumption of Moses are to be considered Scripture. But I don't think that follows. First of all, part of what the earliest generation of Christians, part of what they would do to to judge whether something was of Scripture was that yes, the teaching had to be good and it had to line up with the rest of Scripture. But it was important that the book not be written by a false author. So if the book says it's written by Paul, it has to be written by Paul or else it's not to be included. Uh, you'll see like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospel I mentioned earlier. Thomas was a real disciple. And Thomas was a convenient, prominent disciple who apparently never wrote any, anything that ended up in the New Testament. So the Gnostic said, oh, there's a guy, there's our candidate. Thomas wrote the secret book. But it's not included because it doesn't he- reach either of those first t- two criterias. The teachings of Thomas are weird, and Thomas did not write the book. And it didn't pass the third criteria either. It had to have been written at a time when that person could have written the book. And in the case of New Testament stuff, it had to be written by an apostle. So you have a certain New Testament uh, writing called the Shepherd of Hermas, which has a few questionable teachings in it, but for the most part was a generally well-received book. Letter, or or, or it was more of a sermon, like a homily. And in fact, we have evidence that a lot of first, second, and third century churches would use the Shepherd of Hermas. But it was never considered scripture because Hermas was not an apostle. He wasn't even alive during the days of, of Jesus to have been an apostle. And so Enoch and the Assumption or the Testimony of Moses were set aside because they obviously weren't written by Enoch or Moses or they were not written anywhere near the time of Enoch or Moses. Furthermore, just because something is quoted in Scripture doesn't mean we have to accept the thing that is quoted. So, for instance, Paul quotes three different things that we don't consider Scripture. In Acts 17.28, Paul says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And then I think maybe the next Paragraph is also quoted as well, but that's all we need to know. Paul's quoting a Greek philosopher named eratus eratus I think so. A-R-A-T-U-S. Then, in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes a playwright named Menander in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Paul says, do not be misled. And here's the quote. Bad company corrupts good character. That's from the playwright Menander.
1: Sounds like it lot be
0: a Yeah. Well, that's why Paul's willing to, to use it. It's 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 perfectly acceptable. And here's another one. When Paul's trying to warn Timothy about his struggles in Crete, he quotes the Cretan poet Epimenides. Who, by the way, let, let, let me do the quote, and then I'll say my by the way. Titus 1.12, one of Crete's own prophets, has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And then here's Paul. This saying is true. That's a That's a... That's a cutting way of of concluding that. By the way, here's the by the way. This is known as the Epimenides Paradox. Philosophers have been discussing this for a long time. Epimenides is Cretan. Epimenides says all Cretans are liars. That's a paradox. Is he lying when he says all Cretans are liars? Or is he telling the truth in which not all Cretans are liars? It's the Epimenides Paradox. And Paul just happens to quote it. Uh, None of these are considered Scripture, and none of these need to be considered Scripture. Paul was just making a different point, and he saw an option. There's another one. Paul refers to, he's not quoting anybody, but he refers to a statue to the unknown God. In Athens, Paul is going on, it's not really a trial, it's more like an inquest, or like the the local council is, is asking what the heck he's doing there. And he says, hey, I've looked around town and you've got all these amazing statues to all these gods, and just to cover your bases you had another statue that said to the unknown god, to make sure that you you worship all gods, because even the gods we didn't think of, here's a statue for that one. Well, let me tell you about that god, and then he preaches Christ. So Paul is not, he is willing to use the philosophers, the playwrights, and the poets of the cultures he's trying to reach. So Paul Peter and Jude use First Enoch because it's such an important book in Jewish culture. But they are not, at any point do they say, and since I'm using this material, we need to treat this material as if it's the the actual word of God. I think, for instance, I know I've, I've used this multiple times in sermons because I'm a nerd. The story of Darth Vader falling to the dark side and then in his last moment... He turns to the light and saves his son and destroys the evil emperor. As a good redemption arc, and it can be used as an example of redemption. And and the what I always use is not so much as redemption par excellence, but that as long as you draw breath, you have an opportunity to turn to God. Anakin didn't turn to God. He returned to the light side of the force. I'm a nerd. I'm just going to run with it. But, But Darth Vader can be used in that case. And when I preach that, I'm not then saying that Star Wars is real, that Anakin Skywalker or Darth Vader were real, nor am I saying Star Wars should be considered Scripture, or even near Scripture, or anything like Scripture, or that the church library should have a copy of Star Wars. None of that. I'm just using a part of the cultural zeitgeist something most of us will recognize, even people who have never even seen Star Wars, are going to recognize the name Darth Vader. I'm using that to make a point. And uh, that's all I re- believe Peter and Jude are doing. Maybe to be fair, it, it, it's a little stronger because synagogues and later churches would use these books. They just wouldn't use them with the same weight of Scripture. They would, the Word of God would be the 66 books we now consider part of the Bible other books would be considered helpful but they were never quite treated with the same level of authority and if there was a disagreement between say habakkuk and first enoch habakkuk wins it's canon first enoch is not okay so let's deal with this for a second second peter and jude are so similar so what are our options what are our options on how to on how to deal with those similarities well as far as I can see it, you have, you have seven possible views. The first is that Peter was sitting down wherever he was at, and uh, probably Rome, and wrote 2 Peter. And Jude was sitting wherever he was at, maybe Jerusalem, and he wrote Jude. And it just so happened that they accidentally wrote entire sentences with the exact same Greek writing, word choice, and sentence structure. That's not very likely. The, the second view, the second possibility that Jude and Peter worked together. Maybe they had been discussing these things. Maybe they, they had already been working on their letters, and they said, hey, buddy, can you take a look at this and give me some of your feedback? And Peter said, well, that's really good. Can I, can I use this? And Jude's like, sure, why not? And then maybe vice versa. Maybe Jude said, ooh, I really like the way you used that, that example. Can I use that? And they said, sure. And so it was basically teamwork. The third possibility is that both Peter and Jude are using a different source. That maybe there was a different letter written by, say, Nathanael. And Nathanael's letter was maybe longer and had all of this same stuff and that both Jude and Peter just happened to, to, to pick the same parts from that letter. So, common source. Likewise, Second Peter and Jude were not written by Peter or Jude, but they were written by the same fella, whoever that guy happened to be. The fifth viewpoint would be that either Jude or Peter wrote both. Now that would be less likely. Why would if you're going to write one book and put your name on it, why write a different book and then put somebody else's name on it? So then the the other options, which I think I honestly think one of these is probably the truth, is that one of them has chronological priority. Either Jude wrote first and the letter got spread around the churches. Peter read Jude, liked a few pieces of it and then used it in his letter. Or, Peter writes 2 Peter. He sends it around some of the churches of Asia Minor. Jude just happens to read it and says, Oh, hey, I'm writing a short letter about false teachers as well. I could use some of this stuff. And so I think that's the answer. I think it's one of those two. I think either Jude or 2 Peter was written first and the other offer used liberally. In, In a modern academic setting, that would be considered plagiarism. But they're not college students in a 21st century America, so we shouldn't hold them to the same standard. They're just using Scripture. Which is what happens a lot in Scripture. You're using somebody else. They just don't happen to point out Jude doesn't say, I'm quoting Peter here. Or Peter doesn't say, I'm quoting Jude here. Do you have any questions or comments so far?
1: I have a comment. I I just really have a hard time wrapping my head around getting all this message out to all the people with a, with a letter that they didn't have copy machines. It just really overwhelms me when I try to think about how could they do all of this? And I, I know they wore, won their people over and they carried the message, but the letters are what they refer to. And how could so many people... Read a single letter, and I don't. I'm not doubting it. I'm just amazed at how that I could happen, because like I look at our communication today, and you know what could we do without a copy machine? And they they weren't able to copy the letters. I'm assuming because most people didn't know how to write.
0: All of that you say is true, except this one thing: that the church would take the people who could read and write uh-huh. and they would be treated as scribes which would be so they and, could copy yeah, they the were letters they were the xerox and... machines okay. now, so the, they did copy oh, yeah. the letters okay in the gospels you'll see Jesus refer to the scribes and the pharisees a lot and that's unfortunate because the scribes and the pharisees often get put in in negative terms okay. neither of the neither groups the scribes nor the pharisees were inherently bad people paul was a pharisee barnabas probably was a pharisee Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, all the Pharisee meant was that you belonged to a particular denomination, it's probably the best word for it, of Judaism that held to you made a personal vow of being married to one woman and taking care of your family and trying to advance wealth ethically. And you have to dedicate yourself to trying to if I remember right, I think they were supposed to memorize the whole Old Testament. But if not the Old Testament, you had to know the Old Testament backwards and forwards, know it like the back of your hand, uh, and, that, and then uh, the biggest part was that you made it a, an intentional effort to try to keep all the laws, all 600 plus laws, and that was the Pharisee order. There's nothing about that that is inherently bad. The bad thing was that a lot of people who were in that order would then have a puffed up sense of self-importance and righteousness, and that was the problem. And to the effect that all of that dedication led to puffed up self-righteousness, then it was a problem. But if you wanted to sit down and memorize the whole New Testament, that would be a great ded- thing to dedicate yourself to. I'm not going to do it. I have way too much stuff to do in my life. I'm going to read the New Testament every year for the rest of my life. That's a dedication I made. But I'm going I'm to probably memorize a few hundred verses tops in my life. That's just It's not something I dedicate myself to. But there's nothing wrong with making that dedication. Likewise, the scribes... Were that was a good group of people. They were the Xerox machines of the day. They were the ones that had the skill to be able to write down and copy everything that they read. And most scribes were trained well enough that they could identify errors along the way and prevent them. If I were to give you just any book of the Bible, let's say 2 Peter, and I said, okay, in the next hour I want you to write down as much of Second Peter as you can. Here's some notebook paper. It's not important how far you get. Just for the next hour, write down Second Peter. And then when we're done, we're going to then actually compare what you wrote to what's actually in your Bible you were copying from. And I guarantee you there's going to be four or five errors. At least. <laughs> at least. The, well, the, scribes were, the scribes were very good at, at avoiding those errors. The fact that they still, each one of them would still make a few hundred errors over their their career, is why we have so many people at seminaries who learn Greek and pour over these documents for their entire lives. But still, that doesn't change the fact that they made very few errors, and they were incredibly valuable for saving the Old Testament and then spreading the New Testament. So if the letter to the Ephesians is probably the best example, Ephesians was designed to be a letter that was spread. So the original Ephesians would show up probably to Ephesus, and then whoever the scribe or scribes for that church uh, were, then they would make copies and they would send it out to Laodicea, to Colossae, to other churches around. And then, as the first century church would evaluate these letters and there would become consensus around these 27 books, then they would be copied over and over and over and over again till eventually the 27 books we call the New Testament would then be copied together. So you would have codexes where all these letters and the Gospels and Revelation and Acts would be collected, sometimes in different order, but they would be collected together, and that would be done by scribes.
1: But the letters must have been so powerful for them to be read by so many people and to have the effect that it did. Oh yeah. And and like where these established churches were having trouble keeping their members, and and then. Paul would write a letter or Peter would write a letter and then that would bolster them up again when i think about we have a pastor who comes you know and all of that and they just did it with a letter for the most part and that to me that was really really something to is <laughs> hard to you know think about could we do anything like that today
0: well here's an example from about 20 years ago the purpose driven life by rick warren and and Rick, Rick Warren is not above reproach in his personal life I can't think of anything terrible I'm not saying he's a bad person I happen to like Rick Warren a lot I think some of his teachings a bit shallow but I, I, he doesn't claim to be a great bible scholar so I'm going to I'm going to grant that he's a he seems to be a very decent mega church pastor which sometimes that's rare so He writes The Purpose Driven Life, and Purpose Driven Life then gives him the ability to spread his personal vision of what a church should look like and the individuals within a church should look like to more people than he could ever possibly preach to, even with tools like radio and the Internet. So that would be an example. I'm not saying Purpose Driven Life should be added to our scriptures. I'm just saying that the Purpose Driven Life could possibly have have carried the same place in 20th century American, 20 and 21st century America, as, say, the book of James did for 1st and 2nd century Jewish Christians.
1: Peter wrote the letter to the church, and they read it out loud to the people. So there are some people that could never read on their own, so they all they could is what they heard.
0: Well, that was true all the way up until the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, really, until post-industrial Europe and North America to where you actually started to get to a place where the majority of people were literate a lot of times and that's why a lot of uh, more organized churches like Methodists and Catholics and some of those churches will have segmented scripture readings to where if if you actually look at a schedule I'm not sure about the United Methodist Church but uh, Catholic churches I know a lot of them will follow a, I believe the word's lectionary where over like a three or four or five year period the entire Bible will be read at your at your worship meetings. Which is great. That's something I think Baptists should adopt. And so part of that was so that it could be so that it could be read by the even people who couldn't read. It's one of the reasons why audiobooks are so great. If you know how to read enough to be able to read instructions on a smartphone screen you can you have access to so much knowledge. Any other questions or comments thus far? All right, well let's close by taking a look at a few key verses. We probably won't get through all, all these and that is fine. Here's a list of key verses if you want to write them down. The first one we'll take a look at is 1 Peter three, fifteen through 16 But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who, sh- who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is like the apologist's manifesto. Apologetics is the fancy term for defense of the faith. That when people want to know the reason for our faith, be ready to give them an answer. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have an instant, ready, philosophically robust defense of the moral problem of evil, or et cetera but you need to at least know enough about your faith that you can answer reasonable questions. And then if somebody really wants to get into a high academic debate, then say, hey, I have some links for you. Go on to Google, look up William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith. He's got all kinds of stuff about this that you'll find fascinating. That is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But for those of us who are Christians, for those who aren't Christians, I'm not talking to you right now, but for those of us who are Christians, we need to be able to answer when people want to know why we have this hope.
1: And, you know,
0: we hope people can see Christ in us. Indeed. Let's look uh, at chapter before 2 Peter 2, 9-10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are a pe- the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but you ha- now you have received mercy. I wanted to bring this up because I think I mentioned either last week or the week before, I think it was last week with Hebrews, is that we as Christians are priests. And I didn't immediately have the verse at the tip of my tongue, but this was the verse that I was thinking of. That we who are Christians are hold that, that office of priest that in the Old Testament would only be held by a select few. Under the Old Testament system, God would function as holy, as set apart, and the people would function as well, the people. And then there would be a go-between, the priest, who and you, there would be a whole class of priests, but ideally the high priest, and he would function as a go-between between God and the people. Under the new covenant, under the new system, you have God who is still holy, set apart, and righteous and then we are the people of God but our high priest is Christ and through Christ now we have access to the throne room of God the mercy seat that was denied to the people of Israel because God needed to establish his holiness and separateness that mercy seat is now something that we all access because we're all priests thanks to Christ functioning as our high priest 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So, that's a rich passage. I wanted to read the whole passage because it's so rich. The key point I want to mark out here is the theological understanding of the devil. That this is a concept that by the time you get to the New Testament is a, a solid one. The Old Testament you have to really work to look around to build a theology of this person called the devil. By the New Testament it's, it's more well established that there is a spirit realm that resists God and the spirit realm seems to have a chief demon known as the devil and that the devil is your enemy, and he's looking to des- devour or to destroy like a lion, and we are to resist him. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So there's two things here. First of all, this understanding of time. You'll hear this thrown around a lot in church settings that uh, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day to God. The point here is that God functions on a timetable that we just can't fathom. If the God that is described in the Old Testament and New Testament exists this God exists either outside of time or throughout all of time with equal potency at every given time or as we exist only in the present with equal potency we have memories of the past and we look forward to the future but I only really experience now that's not true for God he experiences right now, this second and he experiences a thousand years ago and a thousand years in the future and it's, it's all the same to him and so if we look around and we say, well, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was coming, and didn't the first generation say "God is, that Christ is coming soon? Yeah, Christ is coming soon. But remember that the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, has existed for all of eternity. So soon to Him might be 5,000 years. And if it is 5,000 years, who are we to complain? <clears throat> Jesus is going to come on His timetable when He wants to and for the reasons He wants to. And it might be I might not get done with this lesson tonight. Christ might come before that. Who knows? And also from this passage, um, this is this is a, uh, there are passages that in the, in the New Testament that seem to suggest that, like the passage we read from Hebrews, this is a, a corrective to some of those passages that seem to indicate that God blocks salvation in certain situations, or that God tries to keep a limited few. And there's some truth to those passages. There absolutely is. But Peter is also clear here that God, in theory, wants everyone to come to repentance. He's giving time for people to turn to Christ. I don't have, a, I don't have time to get into a full-fledged Arminian Calvinist debate right here, so <laughs> we might save that for the last in our syllabus. You'll see it in, toward the end we have a few days set aside for some theology of the New Testament. I might save some time for that. Second Peter one through 18-21. We ourselves heard this voice, the voice from God, that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This is the transfiguration moment. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but of prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So about the closest thing we have to a theology of inspiration. Islam, for instance, believes in basically a dictation theory of inspiration that Allah, through the Archangel Michael, spoke directly to Muhammad. And Muhammad basically wrote down every Arabic syllable that God wanted the people to have. New Testament and Old Testament interpretations of inspiration are a lot more nuanced. So, Matthew and Luke and Paul and Amos and David and Joshua and whoever else wrote Scripture Each one of them wrote with their own language skills, with their own poetic styles, or non-poetic styles in some cases. They wrote with their word choice sentence structures. They quoted things that they thought were interesting to support their points. But none of them completely came up with the topics out of thin air, out of whole cloth. That... If And once again, this is a secular class, but what we're saying is, if the New Testament God is real, and that the triune God inspires Scripture, that the Holy Spirit guides the authors of Scripture, the prophets and the apostles, to write the things that we need to have as the church. And we can then trust that the Holy Spirit will not allow the prophet or the apostle to go into error and so even though the prophet or the apostle quotes this, chooses this word, likes to throw a poem in every now and then, that even though the author is allowed to do those things, that the message never veers off the rails. And, the, and that if there's anything that the Holy Spirit wants the prophet or apostle to say, then the Holy Spirit's going to make sure that the prophet or apostle does say that thing. So that's the New Testament theory of inspiration that the Holy Spirit guides men and maybe a few women to write the words we need not every single syllable in this exact order came from the, the throat of the Holy Spirit but rather that the message that is conveyed by each author is the message we need as the church we'll close with a couple of Jude verses both of them are on this same slide because they're so close together in Jude 22 we have one that I love a lot be merciful to those who doubt. How many of us have ever doubted? I run through it at least once a month, where it'll just come down a, like, like a like a ton of bricks, and I'm like, am I is is God fake? Is all this fictional? Am I just a deluded idiot? And it's doubt is a natural part of the human condition. I'm not saying you should doubt. If you don't regularly experience doubt, good. I'm glad for you. But be kind and be patient with those who do doubt, including those who doubt perpetually, atheists, agnostics, and those who belong to other religious traditions. Uh, And also the biggest group, uh, apathetics, those who really do not care about spiritual things right now. We need to be patient and kind with them. There's no point being rude and disrespectful to them. How would we ever win them to Christ? And then finally, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest doxology the Bible has. This is, I think I use this every time I preach in Erie, the, the doxology at the end of Jude. So even though this is not a worship service, I'm going to pretend like it is for the next couple seconds, and this is how we'll close class with this doxology from the, from the book of Jude. So Jude, verses 24 and 25. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T H E W I L L R E I T Z at gmail.com. Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Rice. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.